good evening to you all, and welcome to this evening's event, titled, as you see there, The Ultimate Weapon is No Weapon, Human Security and the New Rules of War and Peace. This is an LSE Global Governance book launch, and we're here this evening to celebrate the publication of a new book by Shannon Beebe and Professor Mary Caldor, uh, published by Perseus Books, is it published this week? and uh, available uh, outside at the, at the very end. And I mention that because at the end of the proceedings this evening, if you are impressed enough to want to purchase a copy of the book, the authors will be here to sign it for you afterwards. Uh, we have a very distinguished group here this evening to discuss this set of issues. And I suppose the underlying fundamental question is whether and how we can learn to stabilize dangerous neighborhoods in the world wherever they are, through the implementation of what is traditionally, I suppose, non-conventional methods, the non -the method, not the methods of traditional war, as it were, but rather an alternative agenda based around the notion of human security. And it's this idea that will be at the heart of the discussion this evening. And our panel of four includes, in order of, a, of appearance, so we'll be doing this informally and sitting down, I think I'm the only person who's going to stand up, is, to begin with, Lieutenant Colonel Shannon Beebe, who served as the Senior Africa Analyst at the Pentagon and in Luanda, Angola, where he worked for the U.S. Embassy. Second, our very own and formidable Claire Short, former MP for Birmingham Ladywood, having stood down at the recent general election, and, of course, the former Secretary of State for International Development, where she played, in my view and in my judgment, a most stupendous role in developing that agency, in developing the concept of international development, and making it such an issue that it is now a protected zone, almost, on both sides of the house. And that is very much uh, your contribution, Claire, and to one in which I think British public life is indebted. Uh, thirdly, our third speaker is Rory Stewart, OBE, who is the Ryan Family Professor of the Practice of Human Rights and the director of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And he has just become the conservative MP for Penrith and the border. And you can perhaps explain to us somewhere how you can combine all that at once. <laughs> we always knew being an MP was a part-time job, but this is, you know, this stretches it. Uh, and finally, our, our very own uh, Mary Caldor, of course, who's a professor here at the LSE, co-director of LSE Global Governance, and her books are, are many and various, but I'll just mention a few. The Baroque Arsenal, The Imaginary War, New and Old Wars, and Global Civil Society, all of which have placed her at the center of rethinking conventional conceptions of security, not just the level of ideas, but the level of practice for a very long time indeed. And many of these ideas, which I can say, having witnessed it here in the LSE, were once marginal to disciplines like international relations, have become progressively more at the center of discussion, not just in academic life, but most importantly among the military, not just here but elsewhere, where these issues really matter. So please join with me in giving them all a very warm welcome. I myself very much look forward to the discussion. I have a lot to learn. As I say, we'll start with Lieutenant Colonel Shannon, Shannon Beebe's. But first of all, welcome to you all. First of all, thank you, uh, thank you all very much for uh, attending tonight, and thanks to the London School of Economics for uh, hosting us. 
Uh, my caveat is that these remarks that I will make are entirely my own and not reflective of the Department of Defense or the United States <laughs> Army or uh, any other U.S. Uh, governmental organization, and you will probably know why after I finish speaking. Um, I have the very easy job tonight of sort of setting the stage and talking a little bit about how Mary and I came together to write this book from very opposite ends of the spectrum, and also why it is so important that we're writing this, this uh, work right now. I'll leave you with this thought and ask you to reflect on this tonight. We can only achieve those things for which we have words. We can only achieve those things for which we have words. Now, why is that so important? Because really over the past eight or nine years, we have really struggled with the first order question of what is security for the 21st century? I was faced firsthand with that in my position at the uh, Pentagon when I had to go in and brief the entire uh, senior army staff on how do you describe, how do you define security in Africa? And I started off with two things. First off, Africa is a continent, it's not a country. And second off, there's a reason that it's shaped like a question mark. <laughs> because we really don't understand what creates security in Africa. Well, I really thought I would be fired at that point and be flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, but the, uh, the chief of staff of the Army uh, saw something in that, so he challenged me to go out and find how Africans view security. And that's when I started realizing, when I spent uh, time in over 20 countries in Africa, that the way that Africans and the way that the developing world is looking at security is very much different than the way that we, in a Western concept, we in the United States, see that security. Whereas in the West, we define security very much in terms of kinetics. In other words, state-on-state -state types of engagements, challenges of land forces, challenges of air forces, challenges of naval forces. What I found when I talked with Africans from everything from Somali taxi cab drivers in Washington, D.C., all the way up to some of the ministers and chiefs of defense in Africa is security is not based on kinetics in these areas. It's based on conditions, conditions that don't necessarily create threats but create creeping vulnerabilities, those things that in a Western mind we really don't see as challenges of security challenges of water and sanitation, challenges of lack of education, challenges of poverty, challenges of climate change. All of these things that if you try to, to brief this at the Pentagon as this is a security concern, you would most likely be laughed out of the, out of the hall, much less being, uh, being take, taken very seriously. Yet what we understand is it's not the air forces, the naval forces, those forces that we're going to contend with in the 21st century. It's very much forces of nature, per se. Those things that drive these instabilities, that as we continue to look for that silver bullet, and ergo the title of the ultimate weapon, as we continue to try to find a 20th century definition, a 20th century silver bullet, an ultimate weapon, what we soon and quickly find out is that these ultimate weapons that were designed for security in the 20th century are consuming security in the 21st. Those weapons that were designed to fight the land forces, the naval forces, the air forces, don't do that well with the forces of nature. Lest we forget that two of the greatest attacks that ever happened in the United States happened at the beginning of the 21st century. Neither of those was from a state-based enemy. Neither of those was from the, this type of kinetic force. And that was 9-11 with Al-Qaeda and Hurricane Katrina that hit our, our Gulf Coast. So the challenge is, do we have the words to bring what we've traditionally seen as security threats 
together with what are the security threats, those creeping vulnerabilities that, when they're allowed to intermesh, create a hybrid type of threat. The threats have always been there. One of the challenges of today is that those populations living in desperation, those populations that, that don't have a voice, that live without hope, are now able to, to interconnect quite a bit through internet, through telephones. I, I often argue that I have better cell phone coverage in, uh, in uh, eastern Congo than I have in some places in Washington, D.C., and I'm serious about that. But these are the things that we have to look at, and we have to lay aside our traditional Fabergé rice bowls. We have to lay aside our traditional arguments of, well, that's defense, well, that's development, well, these are, this, this isn't your area. So this is how Mary and I came together. We came from very, very opposite ends of the spectrum. Traditionally, in 10, 15 years ago, we probably wouldn't have even been able to sit on the same stage because the world has changed systemically and the world was very different then. What we need is a language of coming together. What we need is a language of commonality. What we need is a language of understanding. And that's what this book is, is very much about. It's a book of questions. It's about how to frame those questions and how to speak that language. You're not going to find very many answers. Because as we move forward, this is very much a different world, and we've struggled with that. And we've seen those struggles in, in places such as Afghanistan and places such as Iraq. Is how do we find, how do we bring together those, those struggles of, of, of humanity, of, of creating that human security, that stability, that type of sustainable security that sets the conditions that allows for the development. And what we find is they are not mutually exclusive. This is not an issue of banging swords, in or plow, uh, swords into plowshares. This is not an invasion of humanitarian space, as many in the NGO community have, uh, have discussed and are, are afraid of what's happening within, within the Department of Defense. This is very much a searching, a, a striving to find that common language. And I'll close because, again, I, I uh, said I have the easiest job, which is setting that stage. But a lot of times people wonder, how is it that military officers become so involved in this, particularly an intelligence officers become so involved with these kinds of things? There's got to be there's got to be a catch to it. And I reflect back to General Douglas MacArthur's final uh, stop at West Point, which is where I graduated from. And he was asked by all the cadets, tell us the glories of war. Tell us the, 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 how wonderful it was to lead soldiers in the combat. And it was Douglas MacArthur that pointed out as he shook his head, and he said, it is a soldier who first prays for peace, for it is a soldier that first experiences the ravages of war. And so, in essence, this is somewhat a book of prayer as well for me. This is a way of, I hope, that we can find a language to find more peaceful, more sustainable solutions, rather than wait until those crises become catastrophe, the catastrophe becomes combat, and the combat becomes losses. And I think we can do that. And with that, I thank you very much. I still remember the, the mood that spread across the world when you got the combination of the Berlin Wall coming down and Nelson Mandela being released from prison and that sense that now we really could have a new world order. We could spend massively less on armaments, we could share ideas, develop the world. Africa had a new chance with the end of apartheid and all the conflicts that had arisen from that. And I think when we look from then on, 
you see a massive incompetence in the international system that is still at play and that is shockingly ill thought through and aggravating problems rather than resolving them and I, I very much welcome this book because it's opening up the space for that discussion because the, the international establishment is at fault and incapable of thinking afresh about the change world we have uh, in our hands, as, as you have just said. But I think the NGO community, the left, the intellectuals are too fragmented in their critique to take on the whole situation. So people talk about how development could be done better, how you know Iraq shouldn't have happened, a different approach to the Middle East or whatever whatever it might be, but it's fragments of critique rather than standing back and saying all the presumptions need re-examination and, and, um, and we need to take an overview on our defence capabilities, our development capabilities. The fact that uh, the insecurities that are coming with the, the crisis of climate and growing population and shortage of resources are a crisis for everybody and a very unstable, unhappy Africa with lots of millions, we're talking, tens of millions of displaced people is a, is a threat and a danger for Europe. We're in this together. It isn't that we're okay and they're not okay. If we don't behave more intelligently, there is going to be so much disorder and trouble and suffering. And just to, to, to skate through, I mean, the end of the Cold War we welcomed, and then you saw the international system incapable of acting. So you get Somalia, the first President Bush, yes, intervene um, to help ensure that people got fed because the food was being looted, and then Black Hawk down, and so on, and Clinton scuttling, and leaving Somalia with no state, no authority, no order, and as you know, just continuous <coughs> suffering and displacement of Somali people all over the world ever since. I mean, that's a display of massive incompetence. And indeed, we might see many more Somalias if we don't um, learn some lessons. And then the Balkans. And as it started, you know, the breakup and the recognition of some of the small states, we can go back over it. But the first UN operation wasn't given enough authority to prevent the Serb guerrillas from stealing oil and food supplies from the UN protected convoys. We could have easily put a UN uh, protection around Sarajevo or whatever. I mean, it, w it didn't require anything very grave. <coughs> Complete failure. So we get to the point of the intervention in Kosovo, which I still think was right to prevent further Milosevic ethnic cleansing. But as they say clearly in the book, saying from the beginning that you'll only operate from the air is to put two arms behind <coughs> your back and make yourself much more incompetent at, at dealing with the problem and protecting the people and minimising casualties. Um, then along comes Sierra Leone, which was a sort of success, and I just that was done on the back of an envelope. You've got a civil war and real disorder in West Africa, threatening its people, causing enormous suffering, when everyone remembers the arms chopped off and so on in, in Sierra Leone, there's also massive use of rape and sexual violence, which happens in those kind of uh, civil wars. Um, the British went in to evacuate the Europeans, then realised how dreadful it would look to do that, and then Freetown would fall again, and on and on it would go. And we had a UN peacekeeping operation that had gone wrong, and UN troops were being taken hostage and so on. So the Brits, you know, there's people like me ringing up Tony saying, you cannot do this. 
So the Brits stay and don't know what they're doing. And then on the back of an envelope, they... Um, well, one thing happened was that uh, 11 of them, I'm still convinced they were going off to play football, got taken hostage <laughs> and the Paris came in and really used some force and the rebels decided there was. I mean, sometimes you have to use force, to, but it is true. That was a turning point. Then they thought, wow, the international community means to stop this. Um, and, and then the process of building a Sierra Leonean army, which was a training role, and building a new police force and starting to rebuild the institutions of the state was all done on the back of an envelope and at the last minute, and that was good. I mean, that was the right kind of approach. <laughs> but what's terrifying about it is that it wasn't planned, it wasn't thought through. Um, and that's really the true story of how it happened. Um, the attack on the Twin Towers, and then Afghanistan. And if you remember immediately after the attack on the Twin Towers, there was a good instinct, and indeed Blair played a part in it, saying, don't do something rash, hold the world together, and of course you had the UN, both the Security Council and the General Assembly, unanimously denouncing what had happened, saying there must be international cooperation to bring those who are, are guilty to, um, to justice, and we must all share information, a massively united atmosphere in the world. And then Afghanistan, which um, the actual invasion was very unviolent, um, and indeed all the evidence is the people of Afghanistan were hopeful that the Taliban government had gone and they would get a better future. And then the UN was brought in to do the process of consultation to create new institutions so that the people of Afghanistan were fully consulted as they were. Um, and then there was just NATO and ISAF in Kabul and people in Kabul being relaxed and everyone said we've got to help Afghanistan rebuild its institutions. And then an argument certainly inside our government the Americans wanted to be free to go and bomb and find Osama bin Laden and Mullah uh, Omar, both of whom they still haven't found. <laughs> and, um, and then there was a hurry, get, an army, get a government in place, bring in the warlords, and the rest of us were saying, come on, you mustn't do that. The, the warlords must have their forces disarmed, you have to build a national army, etc. And there was the kind of shortcut that helped to lead to all the trouble. And of course, when Britain deployed in 2006 into Helmand, what was that for? What was the strategy? If it was dangerous, if there weren't enough helicopters, why <coughs> wasn't there a discussion? Why didn't the military say, we're not ready? I mean, Blair, stupidly again, just went there because the Americans wanted him to, but why did the military agree? Oh, this is incompetence. I'm, not, I'm, I'm trying to say, not, um, you know, let's be against X, Y, and Z. I'm trying to say, what is going on here? You know, I, in the run-up to the Iraq war, I kept thinking, they won't do it. They've got Harvard and Yale and all these people who understand the state of the world. So, and then when you take the attack on the Twin Towers and the response of massive, massive increase in arms spending on massively expensive weaponry to catch a guy that's in a cave on the, on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan and behaviour that aggravates and annoys the Muslim and Arab community in the world and complete failure to make progress on Israel-Palestine. And you think, what was that President Eisenhower said? Beware the military-industrial complex. I think they are in control. Vested interests that want to spend on arms with no intelligence underneath it about what the threats are to us and how we could perform better and more intelligently. I think that is where we are. And then you can see what happens. Now we're in Afghanistan. And it is where it is, and Pakistan is being destabilised by it, and we have to go on because we're there. 
and you can see the world lining up and you can see, I mean, the Middle East, I don't know, the real problem of uh, the American political system getting entrenched in a sort of extreme pro-Israeli position that's incapable of thinking about it in a balanced way and Europe having absolutely no courage, including most particularly this country, to just challenge that view, open up more political space, create the possibilities that someone like President Obama might be able to make some progress on. So I think we're in an enormous amount of trouble and it's a difficult problem to deal with because we're dealing with a problem of comprehensive stupidity. No, and it's, it's mindset lag, which is, they say that more kind of, kind of well, not quite as crudely visible. <laughs> no, but the 20th century mindset. But this is incredible. And I do think it's infecting the NGO community, the critics, the intellectual community, the paradigm shift, and the changes that are possible, we've all got to recreate. And the, the funny little example of Sierra Leone which is, by no, I mean, what's happened since is still way down on the Human Development Index. But the country was stabilised and institutions were rebuilt and people in Sierra Leone are still grateful for that intervention because they were suffering horrendously from the Civil War. Show that without any sort of enormously complex effort, great progress can be made. And this is my final point because I'm running out of my ten minutes. The British soldiers that served in Sierra Leone were so proud of what they did and the people of Sierra Leone loved and admired them for, for bringing stability and order back to their country. Look around the world at the UN peacekeeping operation. We've got more than we've ever had. They're paid for in proportion to one's dues into the UN, which means the big powers pay. There's hardly a soldier of any of those countries in the peacekeeping operation. <coughs> Darfur, they can't do it. Uh, Congo can't do it. All incompetent. You would think, wouldn't you, that those who are running the international uh, institutions would want to create competence in UN peacekeeping operations so that people anywhere who are creating instability would know the international community, so-called, would intervene and the problems would be dealt with. So the good news is it wouldn't be hard to do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost going to start from the other direction, which is to begin with saying I'm a little bit troubled by some of the connections that are sometimes drawn and the general assumptions that we have now that it's possible to do things which I think are very difficult to do. Because of 9-11, because of our fears of terrorism, because of our very understandable commitment to development, because of our fears of instability and poverty, there has been a general move, I suppose, over the last 15, 20 years to construct a theory of comprehensive engagement. If you were to go to Afghanistan over the last five, six years, you would hear again and again about a comprehensive solution, about the three Ds of development, defense, and diplomacy. You would hear President Obama say in his speech 18 months ago that our development is dependent on their security and our security is dependent on their development. A very curious, hypnotizing rhetoric, which has many positive features. And I want to end on the positive features, but I just want to put this as a coda for, I think, a very, very impressive book written by two people who know an enormous amount about what they're doing. But my, my concern, my anxiety is 
it seems to me, whenever I've got engaged in these operations on the ground, that we can do much less than we pretend, and that there are very, very difficult choices perpetually to be made, and that we have got ourselves into a mindset, partly driven through our language, partly driven through our society, partly driven through our think tanks, which has certain features. The first feature, I think, the first vice of the modern age is a kind of megalomania. Our societies, our governments, believe they can do almost anything they want. They believe they are going to be able to create a legitimate, effective, stable state in Afghanistan, or to go back to the words of the Afghan finance minister in 2002, a gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, centralized state based on democracy, human rights, and religion. <laughs> <laughs> um, the second feature of our civilization is a paranoia, a tendency to exaggerate our fears, to imagine that Afghanistan or wherever else we happen to be thinking about at the time is the most scary place imaginable. That were Afghanistan to fall, somehow the sum of all our fears would be realized. Exactly how you spell this out may vary from think tank to think tank, from congressman to MP, but the bottom line is it's a very scary place. It doesn't seem possible for us to step back and say, for example, yes, this is a poor, fragile, traumatized country, but perhaps it's one of 40 other poor, fragile, traumatized countries in the world that we have to think about to which we have some limited responsibilities and some limited interests and in which we might have a moderate engagement. But our security, our future, does not depend on this place. The third feature of our mania is a desire to connect very different things together. I talked a little bit about the president saying our security depends on their development and vice versa. But you can see this also in the way in which justifications operate, the way in which things are connected. So for example, if you were dealing with Afghanistan, you would be told by the president in his March 2009 speech that the objective is a very narrow one. The objective is terrorism, right? We're trying to deal with Al-Qaeda. But the means to that end turns out to be this huge pyramid of other endeavors, all of which are believed to be logically connected to that end. In fact, not just consistent with that end, but somehow enhancing that end, that you have terrorism where you have poverty, you have terrorism where you have the Taliban, you have terrorism where you have a failed state, you have terrorism where you have regional instability, and therefore somehow in order to deal with Al-Qaeda you must simultaneously develop and eliminate poverty, you must simultaneously bring peace to Pakistan, you must simultaneously uh, ensure that human rights are upheld, etc., etc., etc. In fact, you end up in a worldview in which you cannot do anything without doing everything. And as a result, if you were to read the counterinsurgency manual of the US military, it reads very much like a World Bank policy document. <laughs> I mean, it is astonishing, right? You read this document and you will read about the rule of law, civil society, human development, and you wonder where exactly anything stops. Now, there are very good reasons for this, which were raised by my distinguished colleague. Now you can come back to this in the questions, but I think there is also something quite dangerous about it, because it means that you create a world in places like Afghanistan where a Swedish humanitarian organization finds no way of explaining how their objectives might be different from that of the US military, right? where the objectives of the CIA turn out to be correspondingly identical with those of Human Rights Watch 
right, where the objectives of the Afghan government turn out to be identical with those of the Pakistan government and the government of the United Kingdom. It appears to be impossible for our politicians, for our academics, for our think tanks to talk about conflict, to talk about difference. And our language makes it worse. I mean, I absolutely agree that part of the problem is language. The very practice of naming restricts our response. If you call the Taliban global jihad, <coughs> certain things follow from that. Because it's a global jihadi organization, we cannot negotiate. <laughs> something a counterinsurgency, that too has incredible implications contained in hundreds of pages of doctrine. For example, if you call something a counterinsurgency, when I was testifying to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, I was sitting next to a man uh, called John Nagel, a friend of mine, who works on counterinsurgency warfare, and he kept saying, no, 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 I disagree with Rory, this is a counterinsurgency, therefore we need one trained counterinsurgent for every 50 members of the civilian population. All these therefores, all these curious implications are contained in the language. As soon as you say, this is a counterinsurgency, everything else follows. This makes it difficult for us to talk about whether there might or might not be situations where we don't feel obliged to do something. I mean, we, we, we behave as though everything in the world is something that we should do, that we need to do, that we can do. We need to recognize that there are things that maybe are incredibly important, but which we, the international community, may not be able to do. It is no reflection on the importance of the rule of law, civil society, good governance, to say that those things may be very difficult for us to create, and that ought implies can, that we do not have a moral obligation to do what we cannot do. And even in the situations in which it is possible to identify things, which we should do and which we can do, they are very, very difficult things to do. And this is totally concealed. I mean, I was sitting in the House of Commons hearing a debate on foreign affairs today. Nobody, it seemed, on any side of the House seemed to acknowledge that the kinds of things we talk about in relationship to Afghanistan, to Kashmir, to Pakistan, to Iran, may not be doable. There may not be any answers or solutions to these problems. And this is disguised in, in wonderful platitudes, disguised in platitudes about a comprehensive approach, uh, a grassroots approach, the political participation, the poor, the vulnerable, and the marginalized, particularly women, transparent, predictable, and accountable financial processes, a state-building approach focused on a legitimate monopoly on the use of violence, a good financial administration, a good civil service, investment in citizens' rights and responsibilities, investments in human capitals, international relations, and the rule of law, right? All these things disguise what is specific, what is difficult, what is risky, what is controversial, what is tough about engaging the situation, and conceal in a web of language the fact that, yes, we can succeed. And there are many things that we can do. There have been successes. We've talked about Sierra Leone, Bosnia, Kosovo. These places have worked. Maybe things 
I think very good have been done by the European Union in, in Poland, in Romania, perhaps now in Turkey. And there are other things which don't seem to work, Iraq, Afghanistan. And I don't think we have a very good explanation of why some work and some don't. And I don't think it's actually, uh, slightly disagreeing with Claire, I don't think it's actually because of incompetence. I think our institutions are as they are, pretty much. They can be tweaked, they can be improved. But in the end, the level of seriousness required, the level of flexibility required, the level of knowledge required, the level of power required, the level above all of legitimacy required to engage in state transformation in another culture is not something that is in the possession of the international community. Power, knowledge, and legitimacy rests within those societies. Our role turns out in Bosnia and Kosovo and Sierra Leone to be that better or worse of facilitators and facilitators who operate best in an easier environment. So my little contribution, on this point I will shut up, right, my little contribution is to say that this is an enormously important contribution to a debate. And I think the questions raised by Shannon and by Mary are crucial. And I'd like those questions to be framed in terms of not only what we feel we ought to do, but what we can. Because my guess is, if we can do much less than we pretend, we can do much more than we fear. Thank you very much. Applause yours, Mary. Okay. Well, as I was thinking about today, I listened this morning to the Today program. And the two big stories on the Today program were the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, the North Korean attack on a South Korean boat. And actually, uh, both of them really illustrate the themes of our book. In the case of the oil spill, what the Today program was explaining was that everyone in the United States or, or President Obama is coming under great attack because he isn't controlling what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico. And people are saying, here's the country with the greatest military power in the world, and it can't control the oil spill, and it doesn't have the capacity to deal with the oil spill. So that's one example. The other example, North Korea. On the face of it, that's a classic military crisis. Yet, a classic military response would be completely inappropriate. Why? Because if it was just a threat, then it would be exactly what the North Koreans want. The North Korean regime has been on a war footing since the end of the Korean War, and they sustain themselves through external threats. If it was an actual invasion, which I'm sure it won't be, it could be it would lead to another collapsed state, like in Iraq or Afghanistan, and a collapsed state with violence, and, and probably a collapsed state with nuclear weapons. You can take the example of Haiti, uh, also earlier this year, where the only capacity available to deal with Haiti were US military troops, and the result was the response was heavily militarized, incompetent, uncoordinated. So these are all the sorts of things that we are concerned about. 
And what Shannon and I are arguing, to put it very simply in this book, and perhaps we're arguing for too much, but I'll come back to Rory's points in a minute, is that we need a transformation in the way people think from classic national security based on conventional military forces with all the tools at their disposal, um, designed against a t a t foreign attacks, to what we call human security. And what I'm going to explain what we mean by that. Um, human security designed to meet the typical risks of the 21st century. That includes natural disasters, that includes financial crises, but it also includes violence of the type we see in Afghanistan or Somalia. And what we're really arguing for is that what we need, actually, is worldwide emergency forces rather than military forces, sort of including health services, um, uh, firefighters, policemen, the kinds of things you have in a well-ordered society, but which some societies lack. You may also need military forces in these cases, particularly in situations of violence. But military forces acting in support of the police and acting in a completely different way from classic war fighting. Um, the book actually, although we're dealing with the whole range of risks, does focus on violent situations because I think we do really have to answer the question what to do in places like Afghanistan, Somalia, the dangerous places of the world which are spreading and where people live intolerably insecure lives. So let me briefly say how we define human security. Um, basically, human security is about the security of individuals and the communities in which they live, rather than about the security of states and borders. It's about security from violence as well as security from material deprivation, about freedom from fear and freedom from want. And it's global. It's about the interdependence of the world. It's about the fact that whereas in the past we thought the rule of law and police were the way to keep, to make us secure inside, and military forces were the way to make us secure outside, nowadays, in a globalized world where we're so interconnected, you can't make those separations. We need the rule of law globally. We need police globally. So that's, so it's also a global strategy. Now it's absolutely true that the, the US military are changing and we've got all this lovely new language that Rory was talking about. We've got the comprehensive approach, we've got the new counterinsurgency doctrine. So is what we're saying any different from all of that? Well, it's certainly true that in the counterinsurgency doctrine they talk about population security and actually McChrystal, in his report on a new strategy for Afghanistan, even uses the term human security. But I think the problem is, and I think this is a real problem, it's still framed in traditional terms. Population security is a means to an end, and the end is still the defeat of America's enemies. They don't use the language of the war on terror, but the idea, if you read Obama's speeches, it's still... Basically, we're there to defeat America or Britain's enemies. We're there to make our streets safer. That's the argument. And I think that is a huge problem. 
It's a problem strategically, because if you say we're there to defeat America's enemies, then Afghans feel very nervous, and they do feel very nervous. They feel their forms in a wider battle. And um, they don't really, they can't really trust the international presence. It can't have legitimacy. It's also a big problem tactically, because actually in the end, Afghan lives are being sacrificed to the greater goal. And the greater goal is the defeat of American enemies. Now, it's completely the case that McChrystal has ordered a reduction in airstrikes. He wants to reduce collateral damage. But civilians are still being killed, especially in night raids. And the difference in a human security case is that it would have to be under similar rules that we expect to have domestically. Could you imagine if, in response to the London 7-7 bombings, we used precise drones to hit the homes of the 7-7 bombers, just to give you... In Leeds. <laughs> Could you imagine that? I mean, that would be incredible. We would never even think that way. And the fact that we can think that way in Afghanistan is really problematic. And so at the heart of human security is the idea that human beings have to be treated as equals. And that, in a way, is the most difficult thing in changing people's mindsets. I mean, I think human security in a place like Afghanistan would, in, would mean a lot of other things as well. It would mean more bottom-up. I mean, in thinking about what Rory says, of course, he's absolutely right. We can't do all the things we claim to do. But the most important thing, but that doesn't mean we walk away. What it means is that we ask the people on the ground what we can do and what we can't do, and that's what we're really bad at doing. Uh, the international community drive around in convoys and talk <coughs> among themselves. They very rarely take seriously what locals tell them. Um, it would also mean we would be much more multilateralist. I think a big problem in Afghanistan is that there is a real tension between the UN operation and the American operation. And nobody's on the same song sheet. And I think, above all, a human security approach has to be run by civilians. The Afghan effort is so heavily militarized, and the civilian leadership, whether it's the UN, whether it's Richard Holbrooke, is hardly visible. So that's one thing. What, that's what it would mean in Afghanistan. Well, what would it mean for more classic threats? I mean, people often say to me, well, it's all very well. Human security is maybe a good strategy for local conflicts. But how do we deal with Iran? How do we deal with North Korea? And actually, I think it's even more important in these cases. If we were to start to think about North Korea in terms of the security of North Koreans, and we thought that the security of North Koreans was equal to the security of Westerners and the security of South Koreans, we would start to think about the whole thing in a very different way. We, if we start thinking about sanctions, for example, we would think, how would it affect ordinary Koreans? We would probably hope for a peaceful transition, a peaceful regime change, and we would think, how would our actions help or hinder a peaceful regime change? It would bring about a different mindset. 
Now, at present, we are still totally preoccupied with military solutions. I agree with what Claire said about the military-industrial complex, and it's partly just the scale of the effort. The US spends $700 billion a year on military spending, and that's half the world total. The entire spending on Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 10 years, which is in addition to the regular defense budget, is just coming up to $3 trillion. What that means is, I mean, the numbers are so mind-boggling, it's very difficult to imagine what they mean. But over the last 10 years, something like $13 trillion worldwide has been spent on the military. And um, what we've discovered is, and we've discovered this in Iraq and Afghanistan, the military can do a lot of damage, or they can just be a waste of resources. Uh, but they can't, with current tools and training, make people safer. Uh, they could play a role, but it would need a very different type of tools. And we do talk about that in the book, and a very different type of training. And my worry is that with the financial crisis and with climate change, these new risks are going to become much worse over the next few years. I mean, we do face a real security gap. We face a problem that we face really serious risks, and we don't have any capacity or thinking about how to do it. And so that's why we wrote this book, to try to get people thinking about how you do it. Thank you very much. Very interesting. How could you stop human security being outsourced to the private sector and perhaps ultimately being run by private equity firms? I wonder if the military, those on the panel with military experience, could perhaps respond to the point that perhaps we're, we're asking our development or security agencies to do things, as Rory suggested, that are impossible or at least very difficult to achieve. Isaiah, Isaiah Berlin said in his writings on liberty that freedom and equality are not necessarily achievable at the same time. And I wonder if we're asking 
states to be rebuilt or to be built from scratch in a stable sense whilst forgetting the historical lessons that states were not necessarily built through the absence of corruption and the lack of war, in fact, tended to be built through violence, through corruption and so forth, if they could respond to that point. Thank you very much, and thank you much to the four panellists who did an excellent, excellent speeches. Um, one quick question addressing um, um, Professor Calder's point. You said that it would be better if leaders, uh, world leaders judged every life was equal. Surely there's a contradiction with, uh, with the first rule of, of, of a government to protect its own nation, to say, you know what, every life is equal, and so, uh, and so their nation is worth Professor Calder used the expression military acting in support of police, but I wonder if this is not more idealistic than practical. If you look at the events of the last two weeks, for example, in Bangkok, in Thailand, and in uh, uh, Kingston, Jamaica, I mean, basically, the military come in and take over from the police because of police failure. Thank you. Yes. Uh, here, and then we'll stop We'll, we'll stop here, yeah, but come back to you in a moment. Don't worry. Not, Just a short question. How would you deal with the uh, military complex? How would you, how would you reform it? And secondly, how would you reform also development work, where some development workers are more worried about spending their budget every year because if they don't, it gets cut. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's already quite a serious set of questions. Mary, can we start with you to pick up the issues around practical challenges to human security and then perhaps declare to the issues, is this all too ambitious, uh, and so on, and, and we'll, we'll distribute the questions. Yeah, I, I think the outsourcing question was a very important question, because one of the real dangers, I think, at the moment, is because there is a security gap, we have got a growth of private actors providing security because states are not doing so. And we've seen an enormous growth in private security companies. I mean, that's also true in the case of the United States, they don't actually, they've spent so much money on weapons, they don't actually have enough troops to do what they want to do in Iraq and Afghanistan, so they've had to employ security contractors. Uh, but it's also true all over Africa, states and are increasingly employing security contractors because uh, international forces, governments are not doing the job. And I actually think this is terribly dangerous. We are creating, I mean, there may be roles in providing infrastructure, but we are creating a market that imbalance. We're going back to mercenaries. Um, and uh, they don't follow the same rules. And it's actually a very dangerous trend. And that's one of the reasons why we need to provide security properly um, in a public way to prevent this growth of a market imbalance. And that also relates to the question about the role of states, which is a big question. But I think it is true that, for good or for bad, that certainly in Western Europe, states um, were built on violence and they were built on wars, but they were very different kinds of wars. And anybody here who's 
been in my class will know that my argument very much is that contemporary wars work in just the opposite way. They're actually a state unraveling. The more you have violence, the more the state unravels. Whereas wars in the 19th and 20th century led to um, increased taxation, a sort of sense of national pride, increased expenditure on public services as a, um, in return for people agreeing to pay taxes and fight wars. Exactly the opposite happens in contemporary wars. Public services get cut, taxation falls, states lose legitimacy. And so you have to seek out different methods of building public authority. And that may not necessarily be state building. I mean, that's one area, we don't really talk so much about it at the book, but in the book, but we do say the key is political authority, but political authority may be a municipality, it may be an international organization. On the issue of nations protecting people, which relates very much to this, I do think nation states have to rethink their role. They have to increasingly think of themselves as members of an international system. And so while that means that they might fight within the international system for their people, there are certain basic agreed rules, one of which is they share a common humanity. I'll stop, I'll stop. oh, just can I say one more thing on the military-industrial complex, which is what we saw from the big cuts in Eastern Europe after the end of the Cold War was that if you don't have a program of finding jobs for the military and transforming them into something else, actually they sell their, they sell their weapons, they sell their services, and they contribute very much to the violence that we've seen, in, particularly in Africa and the Balkans. So getting rid of the military-industrial complex mustn't just be cuts, it has to be profound transformation. Yes, I, I really disagree with Rory, and it's, his point is very connected with the are we asking development or security ag agencies to do things they're not capable of. I think there's bad motive in Iraq, there's bad motive in Afghanistan. I mean, if it was that we're just trying to make peace and security for people in disorderly places, we'd be in Somalia, etc. Um, and it's out of the bad motive that you get the chaotic misbehaviour. I mean, if you take Mozambique, had a horrible civil war, part of apartheid, didn't have oil unlike Angola, um, it's still a very poor country, but the international intervention was through the UN, and the country built its institutions, and it's going forward, and so on. The same is true of Sierra Leone. If in Afghanistan, after um, the original intervention, we'd stuck with the UN lead and consulting Afghans and helping them build their institutions, it wouldn't have become a wealthy country, but the country could have been stabilized and moved forward. It was because the West wanted to be free to farm and go and catch that you created the, the antagonism and so on. And I don't have to explain the ulterior motive on Iraq, but I think everyone really <laughs> understands that. So it isn't, of course, you can't create perfection everywhere, but you can build an international system that can operate in solidarity with people who are hungry or in trouble and, and help them. Look at Rwanda. I mean, no country has been closer to hell than Rwanda. And it has rebuilt itself, taking its own lead, but with support from... Um, actually, Britain was very useful there just because we had no history in the country, so we could uh, 
support their rebuilding of their institutions without any ulterior motive. So, surely we need... I don't, I don't think it's mine, but... Stop. I thought I'd turn it off. And then, and then on the military-industrial complex, just because all these things are so... If we have clearly thought out foreign policy and know what our military are for and how it is in our interest to build effective multilateral institutions, then the military-industrial complex can't get out of control. But when we allow the politics of fear and enemy and hatred and blame, and that is back to the question of we need a paradigm shift in the way we are thinking about our foreign policy. And this is a big duty for people in the UK. The explanation of the UK's foreign policy is we used to be important and now we're important because we're the best friend of the biggest power and we'll go anywhere they say and they might have a semi-revolution in changing their president but we'll follow their president, whoever their president is. I mean, Britain's role in the world really needs re-examination. We could be a much more useful country in, in helping to build that multilateral system that can function and, and help create stability and so on and so forth. So it's not we shouldn't just be poking our finger at America. We have got a massive problem. And most of the critics are in niches of criticism, but not taking on the role that Britain sees itself playing in the world and the way we could be more useful. And just to the guy upstairs, if it was ever true that what was morally right and what's in a country's self-interest is clashing, it's not now. It is in the interest of your grandchildren that we have a stable, evenly developed world. The only way you make Britain safe is in that way. And to do that, you have to treat everyone with respect, quite apart from the moral issues and the fact that we all say we've signed up to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But you can't have a safe Europe if there's mayhem and instability and chaos and wars over water and so on going on all around it. And especially in a globalised economy, the whole economic situation will fall down. So, delightfully, we've reached the point where if you don't treat everybody with equal respect, you're going to damage your own interests. So, Rory, you're, you're a doubter, you're a pessimist. It's not really that ambition is wrong. It's we've lived with the wrong paradigm, the wrong conceptions and the wrong motives. And if we get our thinking right now, then intervention can make a difference if it's the appropriate kind. We've heard the arguments. Not perfection, just Not, no, you can do difference. better. Yeah. Make a difference. Yeah. So, Rory, um, what is your take on that? Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not allowed to repeat yourself. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I do, repeat myself endlessly. Um, I, I agree with Claire that... Whoa. Disruptive, but honest. That's the great thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I agree, absolutely, that one of the problems we have in Afghanistan and Iraq is bad motive, and that creates a problem with legitimacy. I also have a lot of sympathy for the many people, both on the stage and in the audience, who are drawing connections between things. I mean, there are very real connections. I mean, there's very real correlations between poverty, insecurity, instability, lack of human rights, and the kinds of problems that the US military might be worrying about, terrorism, etc. It is also true that there are many reasons to make instrumental rather than normative arguments. Right? There are many good political reasons why 
Claire wants to say there is absolutely no tension whatsoever between the national interest of the United Kingdom and a more equal, fair, and just world. Because it's very difficult to convince um, soldiers to go out and die, unless you are convincing them that they are simultaneously helping the development of Afghans and making Britain a safer place. So it's quite difficult for politicians to say what perhaps Mary actually quite courageously might want to say, which is that these things are not all the same, and that you could have a policy in Afghanistan which could be for the sake of Afghans, and which might have absolutely no contribution whatsoever, or only in the most indirect and vague fashion, to the security of the United Kingdom. What does this mean in terms of norms and values and paradigm shifts? I don't think that's true if you see what the soldiers in Sierra Leone or Bosnia pride they took in yeah. helping to bring stability yeah. and hope to people. Okay, that's absolutely right, up to the point at which, sadly, three or four thousand soldiers get killed. It is much easier to have a humanitarian intervention when there aren't a large number of casualties. At the point at which there's a large number of casualties, the demand from the public, from politicians, to make a connection to national security becomes very strong. So that means that I think we need to do two things. We need to acknowledge that there are instrumental connections, but we need to make normative arguments. We need to say, and we need to be talking about this all the time, we want to do this because it is right. Not get drawn into the situation of pretending that the right and the expedient are always identical. It may be possible for us to say in Afghanistan, I'm not going to deal with this warlord because he is an evil, human rights-abusing drug dealer. Full stop. Not, I'm not going to deal with this warlord because if I deal with this warlord, it may not contribute to the project of state formation and therefore may not contribute to the cause of counterterrorism in the United Kingdom. Right? At the same time, we need to know when the normative argument stops and the instrumental argument begins. We don't want to get into a reductio ad absurdum. The danger of where Mary's pushing, of course, is that it may become quixotic. Right? You may push to a world in which every citizen, regardless of national boundaries, is considered equal. Right? And this may make it politically extremely uh, difficult to say any of these things. So what I would like is an argument that allowed us as politicians to try to combine those normative and instrumental arguments without making them identical. I'd like to pick up on a couple of points, and again, I go back to the most important thing about this book is, is, is about the language, because a lot of times when Mary and I talk, we, we go back to arguing this book, Human Security, in terms of 20th century language, and one of the points I'd like to make is, again, with some of my work in Africa, talking about military and police forces. The leaders that I've talked with across Africa, I have set across from chiefs of defense that have told me, point blank, the top three security concerns of their military force are food security, poverty reduction, and infrastructure. That does not pair with the language of the 20th century. That does not pair with our definition of a military force. And we get into this whole, this, this, we set up a lot of times this division and this very dangerous competition between the military and the police in some of these countries, the, the United States, and again, these are Shannon Beebe's remarks and not those of the Department of Defense. <laughs> we will go in, we will train militaries while ignoring the peace because by, by our rules and the Constitution, we're not allowed to train police forces. And so you have a fairly well-trained military that has resources that are now taking resources from the police 
So what do the police do? They become predatory on the populations. I've seen this in the, in the Congo. So the question is, is it necessary to have a police force and a military force, a military force for defense and a police force for internal security? Or is it possible to have a security type of force? We call these engagement brigades in the book. Developmental armies, uh, one of my friends, uh, J.P. Peltier, has called it a developmental army. But again, aligning the requirements of that country, aligning the requirements of those populations that are asking for them themselves. This isn't just something that we cooked up. These are a lot of the discussions across Africa. Aligning instead of us giving Africans and giving the develop developing world our definition of right, start listening to what they say are relevant for their own security. So again, the language is very important. And until we are able to align that, we will continue to give 20th century answers half-stepped to 21st century challenges. Now, a little bit about the, uh, the military-industrial complex. Instead of looking at it as a threat, and again, I, I, I come from Washington, D.C., and every time a military uh, uh, contractor shakes my hand and says, we really appreciate your service, it, it gives me reason to, 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 to step back a little bit. But again, we have the strategic imperative to shift the way that we look at security today. Yet our strategic narrative continues to discuss these things in 20th century terms. So if you think of the military-industrial complex, it's, it, it's, it's a business model. That business, that organization follows the language, follows the requirements of their consumers. And until we change that language to things such as the poverty reduction, such as the food security, such as the climate change, then of course you're going to continue to have a military-industrial complex that creates the F-22s, the F-35s, the future combat systems, all of these kinds of things, because that is the language that we are sending them that, that makes the requirements to build these kinds of, these kinds of things. And finally, one, one final thing I'd like to talk about, and we discuss this a little bit in the book, is we can no longer keep the mindset of this is an international security issue and this is a domestic security issue. This is very much, for lack of a better term, and call it intramestic. And what I mean by that is very simply, how is it that in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that's probably one of the, you know, the most centralized places in the United States, that you can have one of the largest FBI investigations going on right now because of terrorism, Somali, terrorism. Now, if that isn't inter-domestic, inter I don't know what is. We have to get out of this far side, near side. With the matter of the cell phones, particularly Claire's, Sorry. You, can, <laughs> you can be connected anywhere in the world within a matter of seconds. Again, this is something that we have to realize, is all of these security challenges, these problems have existed for, for centuries. The difference now is we're able to connect these communities of desperation together to act in very, very violent ways in places that we normally would not suspect of these kinds of activities. This is the language that we have to get to. Thank you. Well, your questions were sh very, very sharp. The responses were more discursive. I think we're going to fit more in. We're going to fit more in. We'll need everyone to be a little tighter because I would like to get many more questions. Yes. So let's, let's start with Ovid. Yeah. I'll move around. We'll Hi. take several questions now, and then why don't we get the floor to speak for a while, and then people can each wrap up as it were. Yeah. 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 Good morning. 
Although the panellists disagree on the philosophy and some of the theory, I think you all agree that in the past we have done things badly. And so my question is one about practicalities. In the UK, we have a brand new government. What would your top three pieces of advice be to them to change the way they do things for the future, to make things more better in a practical sense of delivery? Good question. Let's make that the top one, given the time. <laughs> yes. Who else is here? Um, with regard to the, the police-military split, and leaving aside constitutional issues of posse comitatus or anything, um, in the U.S., even domestically, there's a huge increase in the militarization of police forces, SWAT raids for misdemeanor amounts of drugs, things like that. Um, and so if you have something like, like the international equivalent of a police force, not necessarily Team America World Police or anything, but <laughs> something heading in that direction, won't it necessarily converge? Won't there always be a militarized police in these countries? Lady at the top. Hi. Um, I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about how the importance of the local context shapes deciding what is the most dangerous place in the world and what are the things to which we have to address our attention. Uh, I'd agree with you that human security is about hunger and poverty and so on. But though we might all like to live in peace, and we'd like everybody in the world to live in peace, I wonder if we really w expect or want people in Afghanistan and Pakistan and so on to live like us. That's a very, very difficult thing to ask people to do. I think economic issues are so important. Uh, this is specifically for Lieutenant Colonel uh, Beebe. Uh, speaking uh, as a veteran of eight years in the U.S. military as well as a LSE student, I'd like to bring up again the question of the suitability of the military to take on this um, development, human security, new white man's burden that you're calling it to take on. Um, not only in terms of capability, training, education, etc., but also in terms of institutional purpose. Um, I signed up for my tour in the service to defend my country. What I ended up spending my eight years of service doing is creating an Albanian microstate in the middle of Europe, conducting a 10-year bombing campaign on Iraq in between wars, and supporting the government of Colombia. <laughs> so, my question is, isn't what is really necessary in terms of honesty to our soldiers uh, a new force, as uh, specifically has been questioned, a force designed as a global expeditionary force, uh, rather than lying to our soldiers and telling them that their purpose is territorial defense and security of their and their own? Uh, hello, Mary. In your book, New Wars and Old Wars, you make a comment that uh, backwards-looking political projects arise in the vacuum created by the absence of forward-looking projects. Uh, a couple of panelists have been critical of the forward-looking projects which have been carried out in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan in the name of you know, creating global security and, and uh, human security. Uh, I'm wondering 
what you think the dangers are of elaborating that forward-looking project are in the future in terms of future invasions and abuse by the military. I'll try and keep it brief. Um, in uh, the last hundred years, we've come from the cannon to the nuclear weapon and the Predator B, the Apache Longbow. Uh, our destructive capacity is, is, is awe-inspiring by anyone's measure, and the leap in that time is awe-inspiring. But our ability to resolve human problems, to make peace, has not kept pace with it. Uh, does this not explain uh, Claire's point about why all the incompetence? I suggest that the people who, uh, so bankers are cleverer than the people that regulate them. People who make nu uh, nuclear weapons and weapons are, are cleverer than the people who are, are tasked with deploying where they go on the map. What I'm saying is, how do we get the clever people into the right position here? How do we stop the trillions being spent on making war? And how do we up the game? Uh, with all due respect and with the panel's exception, Politics attracts mediocrity. We are we're spending the IQ. We're, we're, we're spending the IQ in precisely the wrong place. Well, questions. Um, yes, gentlemen at the back. His hand up. Right at the back. Can I ask now? Go, please. Okay. My question is specifically to Claire Short. Uh, you used. Um, Sierra Leone, as an example of uh, uh, the good things that, um, the British military actually did, in, uh, and you actually referred to, to the pride that the, uh, the, the soldiers actually had. Now, last week, I think it was, it was a program on um, perhaps Newsnight, in which the commander of the British forces there uh, actually uh, commented on how he became engaged um, to the extent that he did. Uh, moving away from the initial uh, brief, which was to rescue, as you, as you rightly said, to rescue the British and the Europeans in Sierra Leone. So my uh, concern and question to you is, to what extent do you agree for the military to then dictate the extent to which they actually um, um, involve the country in war? because that's effectively what they did. Thank you. I'm afraid the almost last question is the same as what I'll try and give you a specific example to keep it short. Food security, essential to human security in my eyes. If, this, this is direct to you, by the way, Rory. If, um, <laughs> if, for example, Africa develops its own agricultural markets and no longer needs to trade with us, how, if I'm living on an island which is unable to be sustainable on its own, how does that not, if you could explain further, how does that not affect me, decisions that happen in other places? Okay, so it was almost the last question because I would like just to ask the panel one question myself. And it's particularly really to the authors of the book, but I, uh, it would be interesting to hear Claire's reflections and perhaps Rory's skepticism about it. You have you have both suggested, particularly Mary has suggested, whether we need to think not just so much of interdomestic issues, as the boys who don't know this term, that's the marriage of the inter from international domestic to domestic, so it's cross-border issues, the interdomestic issues. But you haven't just argued that, you've argued something stronger, which is we need to think of the domestic almost as the international. We use, need to make the test of what is right and proper, what actions we would take, military and policing actions we would take, a test that passes sort of the highest, as it were, caliber domestic tests, which are meeting the rule of law, sustaining rights, accountability, and so on and so forth, the broad terms of 
human security. But in order for this to happen, we have to have a very sure sense, of course, that the global community, as it were, is a sufficiently combined to be able to sustain such a strong normative program. Now, you argue for this at length, and of course, I'm not innocent in this matter either. <laughs> but the issue I want to put to you is this. You have constantly, the panel, talked about the international community we. In other words, that there is underneath this assumption that the domestic could be the right metaphor for thinking about the global, a strong conception of the we as the, that is, the core international community. But isn't it also true, and here's my question, forgive me for repeating all the rules, but isn't it also Tell true... Tell us that, to be brief. Isn't it also true that at this time we live with a changing balance of power across the world, that the post-war consensus is exhausted, that the old hegemonic position of the West is running its course, we're now increasingly in a post-Pax Americana world, and there are a number of competing powers and discourses in the world that are more strongly articulated than before, and this is the moment today where the West has to accommodate itself to rising alternative conceptions of global order and power and rising alternative conceptions of sovereignty, the rule of law, and so on. And doesn't this make the project, as it were, of human security more difficult? Because it's premised that there is a clear we is in doubt. So let's start with Shannon. Okay, talking about the suitability of the military, I graduated from West Point in 1991. I went in to defeat communism, to, to, to defend on the, the Fulda, the Fulda Gap, those kinds of things. George Bush actually gave our uh, commencement address in 1991, and that's where the thousand points of light came from. When we were in the Balkans, we joked about if there were a thousand points of light, there sure is a hell of a lot of busted light bulbs since that point. So, you know, I understand the, the shift, and that's really what got me to thinking about this. The challenge is, yes, the military, needs it first off it needs to shift its thinking but most importantly it also it fully understands and there isn't anyone to include secretary gates that that will deny that we are very much out of our comfort zone very much out of our our, our best uh, our level of experience those kinds of things so again how do we engage some of the some of the NGOs how do we engage some of the international community to where we're not leading in these efforts. We're not the supported element in these efforts, but we're supporting. And one of the things the military is very good in, we're very good in logistics, we're very good in the command and control and those kinds of things. So again, to be able to say, hey look, we're not at a point of crisis right now. We don't want to be at a point of crisis because once we get to that point, that's when we have to do our primary mission. And again, like I alluded to at the very beginning, and as you all well know, it is it is the soldier that feels those, those impacts of war. And so what is it that we can do to support the international community, support the NGOs, support those kinds of, of, uh, of organizations so they can better do their mission, which allows for a sustainable type of security to set the conditions for development. Very important. And uh, to, the, to the final point, as far as there is a shift of, of the power of the state these days. I, I see that the, the power of the state is, is declining. We discuss it in the United States and military circles, as, you know, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic power. Well, we see those declining for a couple of reasons. First off, the world has gone from bipolar to multipolar, which means it's inherently more unstable. The uneven balance of globalization, and we still don't know the repercussions of that. And again, what we discussed is the power of the individual with the cell phone, the power of the individuals to connect. So until we're able to shift those traditional metrics of measuring security away from both military budgets, away from how many T-82s are sitting on a border, away from you know, how many, how many AK-47s are going into this country, 
we're not getting to the true security concerns and that's really where the devil's in the detail is shifting those metrics away from those tangibles to the less tangibles and again it's it's all within the language what would it you be asking you UK government to do I think the UK doesn't know what it's for in the world <laughs> I mean it should be for making the people of the UK have a more satisfying and fulfilling life and that we should look at reducing our inequality because everything tells us less unequal countries are more happy countries but I, internationally we're obsessed with a special relationship pretending we're a great power and it humiliates us and makes us stupid and we don't use our resources intelligently. That's the debate we need to have. Now, the new government probably won't want to discuss this because they've got two answers. Uh, <laughs> so we need to do it for them and push, push that discussion on, on the, onto the agenda. Someone said, what shapes where we go? And this is connected with Rora's point and so on. You only have to look at what comes in front of the UN Security Council and where UN peacekeeping goes. You don't go perfectly, you don't say, we'll intervene there, or we won't intervene there because we can't go everywhere. You go where there's a crisis and where you think you can do something, and I think that's good enough if you have honest intent. And of course, if the international system had more competence and brought more order and some progress as it intervened country by country, it would both have more authority and then you know, could work its way around the sort of crises and places of suffering in the world. Do we really want the people of... Afghanistan, Pakistan to live like us? It's a good question, but you know, if everyone in the world lives like us, the world goes to hell and we've got total catastrophe. We have to live differently. We have to live more sustainably. There aren't enough resources in the world for everyone to live like us, and everyone's entitled to want what we have. So there's a big change we have to manage, where everyone's got enough, and then we're less driven by ever-increasing material consumption. So that's a bigger question, but we have to face it. It's not just a kind of moral philosophy question. If we don't get on with that, we're going to have catastrophe after <coughs> catastrophe. Um, I think this question of what the military are for and people signing up to protect their country, I think the military, certainly the military in the UK, were shifting. I can remember in, in the Remembrance Day in uh, Birmingham, you know, we remember the dead of the two world wars and so on. There were more and more soldiers turning up with UN medals, Bosnia. Sierra Leone, and there was a change in pride for a different kind of military operation. And I think that conversation was going on, it's been kicked back with this false rhetoric of you're defending the streets of London in Afghanistan, which isn't true, and I think a, an awful lot of soldiers know that. Um, and I think if, you know, when the UN was first established at the end of the Second World War under leading American influence, America seems to have forgotten. Um, there was talk of having a sort of UN special forces, where you couldn't have a standing army, but I think you could have soldiers who volunteered for service, and I think you'd get large numbers. And one of the reasons countries won't deploy soldiers in UN operations is because they fear that if any lost their life, but if they were volunteers, it would be different. So I think a lot of the military are capable of thinking differently about their role and feeling deeply honored to bring security to people who suffered and are living with horrendous instability. The dangers of the forward-looking project, I think this is a good point when you think of Tony Blair's speech on humanitarian intervention and how the, the very fine thinking, in my view, under the Canadian Commission's thinking about the responsibility to protect was distorted into justifying Iraq. And that's again why we need a deeper discussion about what we're for and how you get stability and security in the world 
and, um, and, and that's my answer to your twin sitting there next to you. It wouldn't be hard to be more competent, and if we started to be more competent, we could, we could change the discussion. If we had more success through Anglo, success Mozambique, success Sierra Leone, I know these are all relative, but, and we talked that up and people thought, yes, this is making the world safer, then we could start winning the argument about what kind of military we need and what kind of equipment and so on and recruiting people. My friend on Sierra Leone, I really was trying, I tried to make it absolutely clear, the policy was written on the back of an envelope. I mean, it's written up as a success, but it was kind of madness the way Britain got into it and just turned around at the last minute because it would have been so embarrassing to leave and see Freetown fall again. And I'm saying, yes, because Britain was there and willing to use force and the UN operation that was already there was wobbling, this strange event that the UN operation got more authority. I mean, Britain was playing a leading role, but under a UN lead. Britain. So I agree with the programme. I only read a review of it. I didn't watch it. My point about that is... Sierra Leone could come right even when it wasn't planned and thought through properly. And it shows what we could do if we had good intent and used the military in order to bring stability for people who've suffered because of civil war or whatever. That's the point I'm making about Sierra Leone. I'm not trying to claim you know, Britain had heroic intent. And, and yet what was achieved tells us something. Um, the global community, your question. Um, I think China cannot go on growing its economy. Now, although it's grown and grown and grown, it still has lots of poverty. You know, GDP per head is nothing like, uh, you know, as it becomes the fourth, the third biggest economy in the world. Because, you know, imagine ruling 1.4 billion people. I used to think that when I go and see the education minister. This is the education minister for 1.4 billion people. You know, that is a lot of people. China needs a stable world to trade in and to grow its economy in. What we've got is a fraying post-Second World War order that needs updating and making more effective, and what we're doing is trashing it. I mean, to not insist on international law in relation to Israel, if, you, if Israel can stay and build settlements in the occupied territories, then Saddam Hussein can invade Kuwait. I mean, do we mean it or not? And we need to update and build a structure that can give us the sort of stability that we need. And this isn't just romance. The other road is horrifying in the prospects for everybody. So I suppose j just um, due to the shortness of time, just to answer very briefly, I suppose, the, uh, the opening question. I, I think the major danger facing Britain, and in this I agree with Claire, is that we don't know who we are. And we find it very difficult talking about what we can and can't do in the world. That the great danger in this kind of conversation in universities and think tanks and newspapers is that we all end up sounding like some kind of slightly schmaltzy cover article in Time magazine, pontificating about, you know, whatever, food security, international relations, some fantastic new notion whereby, you know, a microcredit scheme here through transparent, predictable, accountable financial processes is going to contribute to the solving of climate change. I mean, it, the, the, the bottom line advice that we need to give for a government in Britain uh, is threefold. To, to, to follow on from the question of what those three bits of advice would be. The first bit of advice, I think, would be to say that we must try to acknowledge our limits. We must acknowledge that there are things we don't know, there are things we can't do, and there are things we lack the legitimacy to do. The second thing that you would advise a government to do 
is to try to develop a strategy which looks at what our real interests are, what the risks are, and what kind of return we might get. To take a poker analogy, you look at Afghanistan, how much is on the table, how much have I got to bet to win, what are my chances of winning, right? And the final conclusion from this is to get away from the grand schemes towards more of the back, on, back of the envelope stuff. I mean, ironically, the reason, in a sense, why Sierra Leone was a success is because it was done on the back of an envelope. <laughs> the reason Sierra Leone was a success is because it was a sideshow of a sideshow, because the people on the ground were allowed to get on with it. Right, the further and further away it is from the chancelleries of Washington and Europe and their grand fantastical schemes, right, the more successful it's likely to be. So delegate, trust people on the ground, give much more voice and space to local structures, try to do much less and put much more flexibility into the system, and that might be the recipe for a foreign policy. Thank you very much. And a good stepping stone for you, Mary. Good. Well... I'll try to be very brief because we've overstepped our time. First, I want to say something to Rory about this whole argument that after there have been a certain number of deaths, the British people won't stand for us going out and getting killed for the sake of Afghans. I, I see that argument, and I've heard it over and over again in political circles in Britain. I actually think that British people are more decent than politicians believe. I think politicians believe that British people are as selfish as they are. I don't include <laughs> all. And actually, I think the argument to be made is that we went into Afghanistan and we can't actually leave Afghans less safe, less free, worse off than they were when we went in. We have a responsibility to them. And I think that's an argument that most people can understand. Um, and I think it's only politicians that don't understand that argument, and top civil servants, too. Am I allowed to reply, Mary? Very quickly. Very briefly, as long okay. as Mary is, okay. is pretty brief. Right, very quickly, the problem with this talk of moral obligation is it's endless. No. Right, th th there is no limit. This no, is no, a no, no. Uh, no, when you intervene, you can't just <laughs> no. I'm not saying we should just intervene everywhere. I'm no, saying no, no, we no, went into no, no, Afghanistan no, no, no. and we can't Mary, just walk Mary, away. But, but, but Mary, the, the point is this, okay, to, to, yeah. to respond, right? I know a little bit about Afghanistan. The problem in Afghanistan is what we can and cannot do, not what you believe we ought to do. Sure. It's fine to say we can't just walk away. We ought not to leave this country worse off than we found it. The question is, and it's very granular and very precise, after eight years of failure, what can we actually do? Not wasting lives on a grand notion of a moral obligation and not telling politicians or the British people that they have no choice other than to continue trying to do the impossible. Well, I think we don't go on with a grand strategy. We don't go on saying we're there to defeat uh, al-Qaeda um, and uh, to make our streets safer. We go in saying our only goal is to make life a little bit better for Afghans, or just and what as if you, you can't? suggest. What if you can't? If you can't, will you withdraw? You get but, out as responsibly uh, as you but can. But if you talk, most money. of the Afghans I talk to are very, they, they don't like the, uh, um, the international presence, they're afraid, but they're also very much afraid of withdrawal. And so I think the question is to engage in a real discussion about what can and can't be done, not simply to say we can't do it. All assume the opposite, which is you assume that we can. 
No, I think to what be continued over this. To be continued. But I think I wanted to let this run because I think it is a very nice crystallisation. If we have a discussion with Afghans and they say we're going to be safer if you go, then we should go. I have no doubt about that. But that is not what I'm hearing. How many lives? How much money? Rory, how many the years? The point is very clear no, and no. extremely succinctly put. No. So I think I just have to ask the mm. three of you here. Now, be quiet, but whilst Mary finishes. Can I finish? Yes, because there are three other things I want to say. <laughs> One is on the backward, forward-looking projects. I mean, I met um, human security comes up against two objections. One objection is this is too soft. Um, it's just nice, you know, you're going to feed people, but how are you going to protect them against violence? And the other objection is, this is too hard. Uh, it's a cover for the new imperialism. That's the, full, the new project. And actually, I think there is a middle position, and that's what human security is about. It is about protecting people from violence, but it's not about um, any old intervention. Any old intervention doesn't protect people. You know, Iraq, Kosovo, Afghanistan didn't put protecting people at the heart of what they were doing. So that's one thing. A second thing um, is, uh, well, actually, I'll just, because of time, I'll just say one last thing, which is the question that was asked to me about what's the most important thing, which was asked to all of us. Actually, I think, if I had to say something concrete, because I think a lot of other things would follow from it, I would say counselling Trident. And the reason I'd say counselling Trident is not just because I'm morally against nuclear weapons, not just because nuclear weapons are completely inconsistent with human security, not just because Trident costs a huge amount of money, but because having Trident makes us think in these very old-fashioned ways about sovereignty. At the moment, we face stark choices. Actually, British soldiers are rather good, and that's what Claire said, at least they were until they got kind of thwarted by Iraq, at doing the kinds of things we're talking about. But they don't have enough equipment, there are not enough people, because we're spending so much money, not just on Trident, but on big weapon systems. And somebody at the back said, aren't people who invent weapon systems cleverer than people who do conflict resolution? I think that's absolutely true. And I think counselling Trident would be a way of diverting the cleverness <laughs> to other things.